time has come to retool our playing for ourselves, for our students, and for the greater groove. And the big question remains, of course, what is the future of strings? Come on, let's talk about it. Silverman, your host of the For the Greater Groove podcast. I am so thrilled today to be talking about the future of strings with the great Zach Brock. He is here in the Zoom lounge. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, we are going to talk about all the cool stuff that he does with Snarky Puppy. You may know him as that amazing fiddle player from Snarky. He's a Grammy Award winner. He was also in the Stanley Clark Band. That's not nothing for you jazz fans out there. That's kind of a big deal. And, um, you know, he's got a, ho a whole lot of stuff to talk about. He's a classically trained, went to Northwestern University, got his classical degree there, originally from Lexington, Kentucky, now living in Brooklyn, I believe. Is that where you, you guys are... Uh uh you know, I probably need to update my bio. Oh. <laughs> Technically, I, I am now I am now in South Orange, New Jersey. Okay. Yeah. All right. There's a lot of fiddle players in New Jersey these days. Joe's yeah, out there, yeah. and I mm -hmm. think is Earl Manian out there, or is he in? Brooklyn? I'm not sure. And you know, I really enjoyed your podcast with him, and oh, I have never gotten to meet him before. Yeah. Oh, Earl is. Yeah. yeah. He's an MF, as we say. I'll keep it clean yeah. over here, but uh, yeah, yeah. No, he's he's serious business. And, um, you know, I, there's so much I want to talk about with you, Zach. There's um, one thing that I've been noticing you've been doing lately is playing this Eric Aceto six-string instrument, the Fadolin. Or <laughs> Last night. Yeah. I should, I should have it hooked up, you know, but um, you're the first person that I ever knew about playing the six-string. And, you know, I definitely remember you know, nerding out on your amazing instrument and everything that you were doing with it. Oh, cool. And, um, yeah. So man, I, I, um, I've actually had this, this, uh, of Eric's for a few years and I just haven't really done much. I did some live playing when I was doing some solo show stuff before the pandemic, experimenting with it. Um, but I'm just learning it. And that thing that we posted on Instagram last night yeah. was, it was literally a, a dry run of, of this group that I'm doing with Bob Lanzetti, guitar, one of the guitarists in Snarky Puppy, and Keita Ogawa, one of the percussionists in Snarky Puppy. And we have been doing this pandemic era trio. Nice. And, and why we have a bass player is, is mostly for economic reasons, I think. And, <laughs> <laughs> you know, and, and it was, it was kind of on a whim, yeah. but I, I was playing just my regular violin and using pedals and stuff like that. And after, after the last string of gigs that we had, I said, man, 
you know, I just, I have to start playing this instrument. And so last night in rehearsal was literally the first time that they had ever heard it. Oh my gosh, and, really? And I, I'm getting lost, you know, I mean. Oh man. I, I know, I know what's going on and Eric makes an amazing instrument that's so, yeah. it's, it's easy to play, you know, yes. it's, it's, yeah. it's, it's not, it's really not a big deal. And even the string spacing and the string crossing stuff, it's, it's not, Yep. It's it's definitely I think easier now with like the wider bridges and the necks made you know yeah um, but yeah when it comes to me right now at this point well I have between now when we're recording this and our gig on Tuesday to <laughs> to figure it out <laughs> I'm like what note am I on wait that's a B flat oh my gosh you yeah, know like that's no, amazing I... man because you were just killing I I mean I thought you were playing that thing for years. Um, oh. Because it sounded so natural, and you know, for for people who are four string or even a five string player to pick up a six string, it's it's really disorienting. Yeah. Um, and if you're not, I mean, I've been playing six strings since 1980, so wow. I'm kind, I'm getting used to it now, you know, finally. <laughs> and uh, but <laughs> you know, to do that in in a couple of days, man, that's that's a whole lot. And uh, you well, I didn't me. really do it in a couple of days, to be fair. I mean, I've been. <laughs> I've been chipping away yeah. at it for for quite a while, but yeah. Well, what's your uh, what are your what are your feelings about that? I mean, what what is it about having that that low string? What does that give you? What is that? Why are why would you want to you know go to the trouble of throwing your game off and relearning stuff by switching from a four to a six? I think that not only the the range thing is is a is a big draw to me of, of the instrument and fitting into an ensemble it it really opens up a lot more possibilities to playing a rhythm role and being a supportive player because yes. as as all violin players know um if we're playing a regular four string violin and even to a certain extent a five string unless we're on the bottom two strings all the time we're just kind of up in everybody's grill. And so it's really yep. hard to be supportive um, in, in that way. So um, that's that's one of the things in this trio because especially Bob's playing guitar. And then when I was playing regular four string violin, I would do the octave pedal and stuff like that to try to do some bass lines, but it was not that satisfying. I don't know, it just, yeah. it, it just wasn't really there. and. As you know better than anybody, once you start playing some power chords on a six string, <laughs> no going back. There's really no going back. I mean, it's like, wow, I could do this all day. Yeah, it's very true. You know, there's it, it's for me the the huge you know uh, sort of shift, um, sort of a paradigm shift with adding especially that low F string because you know with the C you have that viola range and you're almost there, but having that being able to go to the bottom of the guitar range was so significant just because of the fact that you can now play chords. You can actually be a chordal instrument uh, yes. rather than being, you know, kind of forced into a, a more melodic role, you know, because you're in the treble range. Uh, you know, and that that range thing—it's that's huge. It's very significant in terms of music and arrangements, um, because melodies tend to sit on top. You know, uh, 
chords tend to be kind of in the middle-ish and bass notes are on the bottom. And if you're, if you're a treble instrument, that's your role. And if you can uh, find your way to those lower strings, you, you discover that you can sort of play a different part, you know? It's a whole, it's a whole different character that you get to explore. Um, yeah. outside of our usual melodic roles. So that's uh, true. Yeah. yeah. And you know, I, I would add to that too, that even just in the melodic role, it also really changes your, you know, even if you're, if you're just following a line down that maybe you've played on the violin all the time, you're like, Ooh, I can keep going. Right. It, it, just the nature of it changes you, the, the resonance of the instrument and where it's sitting. I, I feel like, I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm just, yeah re re-exploring the the five string area and then the six string is a whole nother thing but yeah the you know besides the rhythm stuff how do we how, how do we how do we play lines low yeah how do, how, how do we extend the lines and then and also then and something i you know that you do Amaz just amazingly well, it's always so inspiring to me, is that regardless of what number of strings you've got on your instrument, you don't let that lock you into one place. Like it, 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 it would be very easy for, if, if, you were, if, if you were a violin player that was getting into exploring this stuff, that as soon as you start to add strings, well, you've got so much real estate that it's just kind of, you just kind of stay down here. And you know, because the range is so huge. But what I see you doing is still doing everything down from here all the way up here. And right, I mean, that's an insane range. Yeah, yeah, you, using that whole range. And you know what I, I find is really uh, kind of fun is especially in jazzier kind of stuff is to just kind of pretend that I'm a tenor sax or even a barry sax, you know, uh, and just kind of either get into that real breathy kind of low range, you know, that real warm sax kind of sound. Yeah. Um, or, you know, even get into that Barry sax, like, bada, boat, bada, you know, like hitting those bass note kind of lines. And uh, yeah. I don't know, it's just, um, uh, because the texture down there is, is uh, it's not as punchy, it's not as bright, you know, it's not gonna uh, punch as well, it doesn't cut through right. a band, you know, especially right. uh, when you're down there, um, you kind of, it it's, suits itself for a softer kind of arrangement where you can do that breathy, intimate thing yes. down there, really kind of lighten up the bow and get over the fingerboard a little bit with the bow. And, <laughs> yeah. You know, and yeah. The and, then, and, and then you get that weird kind of super, I don't know, uh, tenor flautando. Exactly. It sounds like it's coming out of a rubber tube sometimes yeah. in a good way. <laughs> yeah, it's funny, you know, because people sometimes will say, you know, is, was that an electric violin? I thought it was a sax or I thought it was a trumpet up on top or I thought yeah. it was a guitar when you put distortion yeah. on it. And you can really shape shift in a, in a, in a way that it's a little harder on a, on a standard four, four string. So, well, cool. It was great. I just can't wait to see where this develops. Because an, an instrument, a six string in your hands is, it's, uh, it's dangerous. It's going to be <laughs> Yeah, maybe not for the reasons that. <laughs> <laughs> for all the right reasons. For all the right reasons. <laughs> Career um, ending decisions. Yeah. 101. <laughs> cool, man. Um, you know, so I, I'm really curious about you. You have such an amazing sense of time. You know, your, your time to play in a band like Sonarchy. Um, 
where there's so many, first of all, ridiculously complex, you know, unison lines that you guys do. Mm -hmm. But you often do them with a, a feel, a rhythmic feel that is not notatable, really, you know, where that's doing that behind the beat jazz thing and doing it as an ensemble uh, it's just an incredible control of rhythm, of time. Mm. And I'm curious how you speak about this with your students. I know you do a lot of teaching and a lot of uh, educational work. Uh, and, and in those situations, do you have any sort of secrets that you um, pass along, you know, to your students? Have how to approach things, maybe what to practice or just, a, a, um, you know, a good mental approach or anything like that? I don't think that I really have anything particularly original to add to anything that has not already been talked about. Um, uh, certainly, Tracy, you, you cover that much, much more eloquently and in a detailed way, I think, um, which I find super inspiring. Oh, thank you. I mean, that's that's it. If, if somebody wants to know the techniques, it's, you know, check out the stromboing uh, stuff and, ch and check out your master classes and stuff talking about it. Um, what I come back to is, I guess, with my students is that there there is a lot of of great advice out there um, coming from all kinds of different players um, of all instruments. And as jazz players, we have to not always be going to other violin players to, to get that information, but we have to, just like everybody, you know, uh, uh, jazz saxophone players, for the string players out there watching this that may not be so tuned into to jazz, it's not like jazz saxophone players start studying with the jazz saxophone teacher and then just keep studying, you know, right. with a jazz saxophone teacher. They they are almost from the get-go studying with pianists or a teacher who's showing them stuff on, on the piano and stuff like that. And so we're used to just getting uh, like a cultural and a musical language education sort of broad spectrum. So I always urge my students to get that information also, not just to take what I'm saying, um, which I hope helps on the instrument, but go check out what a piano player has to say about comping rhythms and, and, and how that rhythm is, or yeah. what, you know, ask a drummer, what do they like when they play with a melody instrument? What makes them want to play with that person? Um, but I would say that if there's one thing that I try to drive home, uh, probably because this is just a cop-out, right? No, I'm just kidding. Yeah. Uh, is, is listening. It's just yeah. listening. Yeah. Um, and I, I, I'll tell a little story, and maybe there's, there, you know, I, I tell this story from time to time, but <laughs> it's, uh, it's, to me, this is a significant thing about rhythm and me and rhythm. And I can talk about snarky puppy stuff too. Yeah. But um, something that I've found for myself is that in the moment, if I am trying to be hip with my rhythm, it's almost always the least hip <laughs> or the, the least in the groove type thing. Huh. I, I, I've learned to dread those moments when I'm cognizant of actually 
thinking that in the moment, you know, or like, oh yeah, I'm going to lay back on it or something like that. Um, uh-huh. I, I want that to come from a place of communication between me and, and the band and from an emotional thing and right. a, an emotional connection. Right. So if, if I'm laying back or rushing ahead, uh, on purpose, I would hope, um, it's to create some type of attention that I then want to resolve or keep there and establish that tension as sort of a new normal. And so here's my story. Um, I had just started playing with Stanley Clark and I was just semi-terrified all the time because I never knew what we were going to play. At the time, I was the only guy out on the East Coast and everybody else in the band is living out on the West Coast and they were getting together and playing lots of gigs and stuff like that. And he'd been playing a lot with Mads, you know, and so sometimes, sometimes Mads would be doing, uh, you know, West coast gigs. And then I'd get a call for, you know, if you, it it was kind of a fluid situation. And, um, I still, I was, it was still early enough that I really didn't know what was going to come up. I didn't know what the tunes were going to be or anything like that. So he calls me up and he says, Hey Zach, uh, playing at the Blue Note for a, for a week. Uh, we're doing a Joe Henderson tribu- tribute. Yeah, you want to play? And I was like, oh, my God. You know, I'm like, ah, oh, Joe Henderson, yes. I'm just, uh, you know, I was, I am obsessed with Joe Henderson. And there were definitely periods of time where I was just super obsessed with Joe Henderson. One time I drove from Chicago to Lexington to see Joe Henderson. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, like, <laughs> in the, you know, I was like, oh, my God, he's playing at 8 o'clock. I can make it. And... We, you know, I got his autograph. Nice. Uh, but anyway, so so the story, the story, so the worm turns even a bit more because it ended up not being the group that I was used to playing with, with Stanley. It was Stanley, but then it was George Cables, whom I'd never met. And so that kind of ratcheted up the uh, sort of like, oh my God, George Cables. And then Stanley playing bass, of course. And um, it was going to be Jeff Tane Watts on drums. And so... I never imagined Jeff playing with Stanley huh. or what that hookup would be. Yeah. And, and, I, and I was really conscious, self, I was self-conscious about this of, of like, oh man, you know, how, how's this going to work out? And so we learned these Joe Henderson tunes and we went in and we played and, you know, the sound check, it's like, come in and nobody really says anything, just sort of like, oh boy. You know, just, yeah, exactly. And I'm just like, well, not going to be any pull my finger jokes happening right now, I guess. So, um, you know, I was a little, I was a little, I was a little nervous, but I was pumped though. Sure. I was pumped. Sure. I, I was pretty prepared. I was pretty prepared. So I, I come to the gig that night and I record all my gigs. And this is something that I also always tell my students. Yeah. And this is something that was really reinforced in me uh, in Chicago by a teacher named David Bloom, who was really the cornerstone of, of the relationship that we had was in learning how to record and review my own practicing um, in, a, in sort of an in-time way and actually use it instead of like just record the gig and listen back to it later, but actually actively doing this. And so I always recorded the gig. So I recorded the gig. Um, and I remember by the end of the second set, I was taking the train back home to Brooklyn and I, I just felt, I felt a little weird. I felt 
I felt like it wasn't terrible, but I wasn't feeling comfortable and I couldn't figure out if it was me. And I'm specifically talking about the time. I couldn't tell if it was me or if I was not understanding the hookup between Stanley and Tane and sort of feeling that, I, I couldn't figure it out. So I just, when I got on the train back to Brooklyn, on the way back from the gig, I just started listening back to the recording. And within 30 seconds, it was completely clear. It was 100% clear. And to me, at least the thing that helped me was what I realized is that I could hear myself trying to swing. Mm -hmm. I, I could hear my, I could hear the self-consciousness and the effort in me trying to be hip and trying to like swing extra hard, you know, and, and all this stuff. And so it was like little mic microscopic glitches, I would say, or, you know, I could hear my processor <laughs> choking. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Yep. And, and there was no way I was going to get any better. This is it. Like, there's nothing that I can do between tonight and tomorrow when I show up at the gig to become a better musician, a better violin player, a better jazz player. That's it. Like, what do I do? Right. And I'm sure I had heard this from many people along the way. And the thing that came to me was, man, you know, you're trying to swing and you just need to be swung. So... Ah, that you is know, so heavy, brother. Like, don't worry. Don't worry about swinging. Tane has got all the swing yep. that you will ever need. Yep. All you got to do is just let him swing you with that ride symbol and just and just be there. And then, and so then what ended up happening, and I, I recorded every other gig because I wanted to, you know, Trust but verify. Yeah, and uh, <laughs> I was, <laughs> I was listening, and yeah, you know, I mean, that was it. As soon as I got over myself and got yeah. out of the way, and I was like, okay, well, one thing that I'm better at than Tane is I'm a better violin player, but probably not much of anything else. So I'm just going to concentrate on playing the violin. I'm going to let him swing. Yeah, I'm going to let Stanley do his thing. I'm going to let George you know, dictate this stuff and, and just everything went a lot better. And it was just one of those, hmm. it was just an awareness point. Yeah. And so that's the story that I pass on to my students is, is not only in recording and, and listening in that way, but also immersing yourself in whatever it is that you're trying to, trying to embody in, yeah. in your music. So if you're trying to play some 1959, up-tempo hard bop, then you need to, you really need to listen to that for like hours a day. Yeah. And, and play along with the recordings, but just listen to it, become obsessed with it and, and just do it. It's like, you know, you're never going to learn how to speak French until you go to France or a French speaking country and do that. So why should you be able to figure out how to speak French from, from a book in your bedroom? Exactly. I, I was, it's funny you said that because I was, just going to interject that it's like learning a language. You have to immerse yourself in that language. You have to hear it. You have to understand the slang. You have to understand the dialects, the difference between this accent and that accent if you really want to pass for that, for, you know, being fluent in that language. 
uh, and not being just like you're stumbling around a second language, you know. Um, <clears throat> and it does take immersion. And that's why I think, you know, I. it's funny. I think a lot of string players are very intimidated by jazz, you know, and players like you and others who are monsters in the field uh, because it seems so unattainable. It seems like I'll never be able to, you know, sound that authentic in that because because it's a second language for so many string players. But um, the you know the the way to the way to get there is is a lot. I'm not going to say easier, but it's more fun than a lot of people think. It's still it's still work, you know. But uh, but it's fun work because it's like just listen, just immerse yourself in it, and. One thing that I think is really important is um, move to it, dance to it in your own little way. Now, when I say dance, you can be sitting on your chair and kind of dancing. I don't mean, yeah. you know, uh, Lindy Hop uh, for <laughs> swing music, you know. Um, you know, but let it internalize, let, let that, that feel, like you were saying, let the drums move you, let, that, let it swing you rather yeah. than trying to, like, show that, you know, hey, I can drive this sports car, you know? Totally. You don't have to. You can sit in the back seat. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. I mean, that's the best That's the best spot, you know? Uh, I mean, another thing with, you know, string players, we're so, we're oriented here. Yeah. And there's a lot of, I mean, obviously it's super important, but. And for, but the, my, for our podcast listeners, he is wiggling <laughs> The fingers of his two hands. I am. I'm wiggling them like a strange person. <laughs> um, but yes, exactly what you're saying about the about the body. Um, uh, uh, wow. Well, here's another story that yeah. I share, and, and uh, um, I just shared this in a lesson just yesterday, and I share this all the time, which is that I uh, 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 this made a huge impression on me. This is also early on when I moved to New York and I was doing I was doing my first recording for this label Crisscross which is like a was a small independent label in the Netherlands and I used to get their records and stuff in Chicago we used to go to the Jazz Record Mart and Tower Records and stuff and, and cop these records cuz they're basically just they're they're blowing dates they're just you know they're very very raw kind of old Riverside Prestige vibe things like you go in at noon and you're out by six and like that's the record right <laughs> and um so i was rehearsing with this band that the the record label i didn't know i didn't know anybody in the band and now they're my friends and i, I play with them but at the time i didn't know them and they were really well-known jazz players um and i again was sort of in the back of my mind, I'm like, oh, what am I doing here? And I'd been playing with Stanley, but this was different. It was just a, a different uh, click, you know, of musicians. Yep. Dif different generation, different click, different vibe. Um, East Coast cats. And that tune that I sent you, Common Ground. Yeah. I So I had to come up with some stuff real quick for this session. Like, I, I think I had two-month notice. And I certainly didn't think that I had time for me to write something and then actually be able to play it. So I had been playing that song for a while. And so I decided to add that to the recording. And so, um, you know, it, it's, it's, a, it's a weird tune, which has 
sevens and sixes and like one little random thing of five in there. Uh, and it just sort of came out that way. And it, it was it was kind of something that I, I wrote for myself at the time because it was something that I perceived I couldn't do or, or, or I couldn't deal with that information. I wasn't playing music that was doing that a lot and improvising it. So I wrote a tune to, to do it. And so it's almost been kind of like an etude tune. Yeah. Um, and uh, so we had one rehearsal for this recording and then the recording was gonna, we had a rehearsal and then a day off and then we were in the studio and I was just meeting these guys. So we get to this tune and um, well, I guess I could just show people. Yeah. Um, so it's it starts out like. like the seven eight and yep. that's that's like the little seven eight intro and that's also the end of the form and then that's the sixth part which is the the, the verses and then the the brit or the second part it's like an a b form it goes Sorry, I'm a little, but um, I thought that, of course, these guys being the jazz legends that they are, they're just going to be like, Pfft. but we were playing this in rehearsal and it was causing problems. And I can't say that I was happy or felt vindicated or good about that because I, you know, I wasn't trying to, right, to I wasn't them. trying to like, yeah, exactly. I'm just trying to find like... I don't know, how, how am I trying to come across on this recording and what kind of music we're gonna play? And this is the moment, which is, uh, and this is getting back to the body, this is my point, is that they there kept coming apart where I think it was the little 5-8 thing, especially. And it was happening in, it was happening in the head also because the piano player was having to double the melody with me, where it was just not, it wasn't flowing. There was like a little hitch and there were some consistent mistakes. Well, I'm sure that a lot of people out there have been in situations where people will say like, oh man, it's cool, man. It's cool. I'll practice it. I'll get it. I'll have it, you know? And they just kind of want to like, you know, not, not embarrass themselves or not feel like they can't do it. Um, and just say like, oh, it's cool. I'll have, I'll have it. I'll have it. That's not what that's not what they did. They stopped the rehearsal. They they got up, they had the drummer sort of lay down the groove and the piano player and the bass player and I had no idea what was going on because I said I didn't really know these guys, you know? I mean, we literally only made pleasantries for about 30 minutes before we started rehearsing. They got up in the piano player's living room and they started walking in a circle. It, around the room, you know, like I don't want to tap on myself because I got this mic here, you know, but they're like <laughs> and the way that they got the rhythm flowing for them to sit down and then play is they got away from their instruments. Yep. They got up and just like you said, they put it in their body. It was kind of like a dance walk, you know? I mean, they're they're walking around, the drummer is playing stuff and showing and they're like, oh, could you loop that part? And this didn't happen for like a minute. This didn't happen for like five minutes. This happened for like 15 minutes. Wow. Solid. 
of just doing this. At one point, the drummer got up and he was he was walking around. I was walking around. I you know I got better at it, and then sat down, and then played, and killed it. Yeah. And you know, and I'd never heard it flow like that before. And that was such a revelation to me. Number one, get the rhythm in your body first. Don't do it at the tips. I'm touching the tips of my fingers again. It's, it, the rhythm is not going to come from here. Nope. That's where it's going to transmit from, but it's going to come from yes. the trunk of your whatever. Yeah, and your feet. <laughs> and your feet, your feet ground, you know, whatever is grounding you to the earth. Yep. Um, that, that, was, that was the main lesson of that story to me. And the other one is when, when it comes to true profession, professionalism, and true being a, a badassness type thing to have that kind of vulnerability yes. and that humility yeah. just spoke volumes about their confidence and their ability to make this an absolutely killing, AKA great musical experience and yeah. they, they weren't going to settle for less and they were not going to go into that recording session day after tomorrow and have one little thing that was going to be a little stumbling thing they were just going to take care of it here and now it's going to be taken care of so we can get on to making music because we don't want to be concentrating on this little technical glitch yeah, yeah. And, and and that really that really taught me something about humility and what what real musical professionalism and confidence looks like that's a beautiful story man beautiful story so wonderful you know to have the the humility to say i i need to work on this and then to have the experience to know how to work on it <laughs> you know two exactly. two big things that kind of separate i think the the pros from students you know mm -hmm. uh, and this is one of the things that you know, that we try to teach our students is don't, you know, don't be ashamed of the things that you can't do. Those are opportunities. Mm. Those are the places yeah. where you can grow. That's where you have headroom, you know? <laughs> you got I love room to grow there. You're gonna up your game. Congratulate yourself. You found a, a space to improve, you know? Um, yeah, and then knowing how to go about doing that and then to not feel like a goofball for 15 minutes you know, w walking around the room, banging on your chest uh, yeah. to try to get it, to know that, hey, this yeah. is what I got to do, you know? <laughs> yeah. That's beautiful. Yeah. That's really I, cool. I love what you just said about opportunities. That's such a, that's a, that's a ninjutsu right there that you just pulled there, you know, because, <laughs> you know, you ask your student, well, wouldn't you like an opportunity to improve? Yes. Everybody wants to have an opportunity to improve. Yeah. Here it is. Yep. Yeah, you know, it's all how you look at it. You know, it's just the way you frame. You can, you can either be ashamed of your mistakes, or you can go, "Wow, that's that's you know on my to do list." Circle that, you know, uh, and that's yeah. what you focus on because, you know, that that journey that we're on, and, and it's so it's especially true, I think, in in jazz because it is, you know, it gets it's so deep, um, but it's I shouldn't say j that it's. You know, especially true in jazz, because all music, every every genre has a, a a place where it gets deep like that. But um, you know, the idea that you know you don't graduate from a university or something. And now, okay, now I went from a student to a professional, and you know, maybe I'll give myself a three year residency period or something till I'm a real pro. But no, it's not like that. 
I'm still yeah. struggling with stuff. Um, yeah. You know, I I work with. Uh, I've had the opportunity to work with Terry Riley. You know, he's 85 years old. He's still working on stuff, trying new things, trying to figure out how to get stuff. Yeah, he's got stuff that he does, but um, you know it. Unfortunately, for you students out there, it doesn't end. It just keeps going. <laughs> it just gets deeper and, uh, uh, you know, more more part of you participates. The more you invest in yourself, the more yeah. the audience knows of you. It's kind of what it boils down to. Mm -hmm. You know, yeah. you're, you're, the process of becoming a great musician, I think, is kind of the process of... Um, unclothing in a way you know it's a process of shedding layers of you know it's like we get out of school with five winter coats and three layers and you know we got all this stuff that we've accumulated and we don't really know how no but you can't even see your you know your true musical self sometimes through all these layers of you know um Charlie Parker and and Coltrane and Miles and yeah. Brecker Brothers and you know whatever it goes on and on mm -hmm. Uh, and then little by little, you, you sort of learn how to disrobe and take that stuff off and go, okay, here's, here's the real me. And the more you uh, perfect your own language, your own way of speaking, the more comfortable you are not wearing other people's clothes. Yeah, absolutely. That's a, that's a great way of, of, of putting it. It's a, it really is a subtractive rather than additive process. Yeah. Um, I mean, I guess we can make a million different analogies probably in this, <laughs> in, in this way, you know? It's like, I don't know, for somebody who's into bodybuilding, for instance. Yeah. Like me, obviously. <laughs> or uh, um, sculpt, sculpting. Ah. You know, coming, coming from just a giant slab of something and chiseling away rather than... Yes, you know, uh, Michelangelo said, Sculpting is easy. You just go down to the skin and stop. <laughs> right. exactly. I love that. But, uh, you know, you have this sort of vision of what's in there, but just lose everything else. But, um, yeah. you know, it's, I, I, I've told my students that, you know, that your time in, in college, you know, in school is, a, is an accumulation process. And then once, you know, you're, you, you have to absorb, you have to listen, like you're saying, just listen, listen, soak it up. And, and it's, a little overwhelming because it's like putting on all these all these clothes and but after you get out of school it then it becomes a process of discovery um, of your own voice and how do you get that out and how do you put that out and you know it's not that you stop accumulating but it does sort of shift to a point where okay I've got all of this knowledge I've got all this information now what do I do with it and that's mm -hmm. where I think a lot of people hit a, a roadblock and they come to people like you and they're like yeah, you know, I've, I know I've got the pentatonics or I've got diminished scales or something. Now, what am I, how am I supposed to do something that hasn't been done a hundred times before? Which is, I kind of wanted to ask you about this. Like, I, I've listened to so many amazing solos that you've played with, with Snarky. And just yesterday, I was uh, checking out the Tiny Desk concert in that tune, Chavi, um, <laughs> that you just blew an incredible solo on and unfortunately like the camera's like you're playing the solo and and it's like you're sort of behind the 
keyboard player. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about. Yeah, at, at one point, the tip of my bow came within, <laughs> I think, like a centimeter yeah, of one from of the, the trumpet trump player's faces. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> he was like, whoa. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, you guys are crammed to get snarky in the tiny desk. I mean, that's a logistical, you know, just like, you know, whatever. But, um, <laughs> but um, my point is, when you're approaching a solo like that, um, and, you know, you have... You try, we all always try not to think of the weight of all of the jazz heroes that we love mm. um, and, you know, how they might approach it or what they do or whatever, or trying to, you know, I, I love Miles Davis, I want to sound like Miles, or I love, you know, Coltrane or whatever. When you go into a solo, what are, what's, the, what's the approach? Is there a mindset? Is your mind completely clear? Or are you thinking, okay, I'm going to do a Miles thing here? Or are you going, I want to rock it here? Or... How do you approach it? That's that's a that's a really great, challenging, and deep yes. question. <laughs> and I know it's probably um, different for every song. Sure. Yeah. Um, I think that uh, in in the instance of that Chavi concert um, or uh, the Tiny Desk concert, the Chavi solo, uh, it was just one of those things. As we all know, when you play a song many many times. Uh, sometimes it's sometimes it's working and sometimes not. Sometimes you're connecting and sometimes you aren't. Yeah. Um, and also, uh, the way that Snarky Puppy works, um, and all credit to Mike League for running the band in this way, is that nobody knows when they're going to solo at what time on any tune. Okay. So a lot of times, if you soloed at a particular spot on a recording of that tune... It's going to be 50-50 at best if you're actually going to be the one playing that solo. And also the lineup changes. So in that way, he keeps us all really on our toes. We have to listen because we're all just literally looking for the, uh, you know, the, the signal from the dugout, yeah. uh, you know, with the, the little yep. the nose flip and the ear pull <laughs> or something like that. Yep. Um, so in a certain way, it's kind of like the fuse is always lit. You know what I mean? Nice. Um, you're, you're, you're not feeling complacent, but to answer your question, um, I try to prepare myself for soloistic concepts in the practice room. And then I abandon that when I, when I actually play, but I, but I, but stuff is going to come out that I've, that I've practiced. Um, I just find that this works for me best psychologically. And some people are very different than I am. For some people, they feel much more comfortable if they really sort of have an approach and like, okay, this is definitely what I'm going to do on this song. Um, and I've tried that. And I, um, I pop out of the type of concentration that I really want to be in of the sort of reactive listening sort of wide spectrum awareness thing when I do that. Um, that being said, that's actually something that I work on and that I'm trying to, I'm trying to sort of not be so much all this way, but to incorporate a little bit more of that. And well, which way incorporate more of what? Uh, so, so um, part of what I'm, I'm practicing is 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 being a little more um, 
I don't want to say pre-planned because that's not the right thing, but, but sort of committing more to a concept and then going deeper into that as I play, play it each time rather than always jumping off the high dive backwards. You know, right. uh, mm-hmm. I, I, th- I think that that's something that, that I, I did early on because I didn't know how to prepare. So that was the only way that I could deal with it. And that was a certain way that made it kind of a do or die type thing, which I found I enjoyed. So, some people hate that. For, for some people that causes them the most anxiety. And uh, for me, for whatever reason, there's definitely an, an emotional component to that. If there's there's some some sort of thing that, that gets me going. You're talking about just totally winging it, like going. Totally winging right. it, yeah. And, and, and even sort of like, you know, like when you're, you might know that your solo's coming up and you know, you're sort of, you've got these two, you've got the angel and the demon on your shoulder and you're like, oh yeah, I heard what, he, I heard what they just did. Yeah, man, I'm gonna cop that and then I'm gonna do this. And then the other one's saying like, no, don't do that, be open, be listening. No, just check it out. And he's like, oh no, but I got this lick ready. I'm just gonna like totally rip it, man. It's gonna be awesome, I'm gonna do it. And the other's like, no, just be musical. Just, you know, <laughs> and it's coming up seven bars, six bars, five bars. Um, Anyway, that's uh, so great, man. You know what I yes. you know what I'm talking about. Uh, um, so, I tend to be the kind of person that when I premeditate exactly what I'm gonna do, I usually step on the rake and it hits me in the face. <laughs> you know. So I guess what I'm saying is, part of my practice and my oppor- some of my opportunity to grow, to continue to grow, is to is to bring a little bit more of that other thing into. I mean, not my practicing, because I'm already doing that, my practicing, but to bring it a little bit more in and see see how I can I can find an, an, uh, an authentic way to embody that where I feel like I'm still willing to drop anything at any moment if somebody throws me an unexpected curveball. Right. I, I, I guess that's... That's just a weird... That's just a very personal thing, and and some people, some people just don't relate to music that way. Um, I don't know with with jazz, and this is a very simplistic or reductive way to think about this. But I used to sort of think about this as: Are you, are you more of a Sonny Rollins, or are you more of a Coltrane? Mm-hmm. <laughs> In terms of Sonny Rollins being legendary for just always pushing the boundaries of, you know, if he did something in a certain way, the opening of a solo, he would just never, ever do it again, no matter what. Even if he sounded bad, he would force himself to do that. And then, you know, you have a lot of recordings of training. I mean, just listen to the the alternate versions of Giant Steps, right? right? And, and just how many times exactly the same thing gets played, but yet yeah. that obviously still, that's not a knock on on him or his improvisational genius right. and nobody had an approach and he tried two takes of more or less the same approach yeah yeah right yeah and and you know especially it, it's interesting to listen to the those jazz alternate takes that's a great thing about yeah. jazz records is, is that was part of the thing is we get to hear these alternate takes you never really get to hear that in pop music or other stuff um yeah sometimes if the box set comes out but you know, I, I heard Lee Morgan, for instance, taking, like playing the same intro to a solo, even though the solo would be different. 
or I saw I saw a video of Lee Morgan essentially playing the same solo that he played that unbelievable solo that he plays on Monin, like one of my favorite solos of all time, and it's a it's a live recording of them in Belgium or something like that uh, later that year, and he's basically playing that solo more or less, except he is changing it, finessing it, you know, taking some lip. That really surprised me uh, because then I heard other stuff where, of course, he played different stuff on uh, yeah. different takes all the time. And that's what probably has me thinking about that kind of stuff. It's like, well. So when you're, so when you're doing this sort of preparation, you're saying, okay, I'm going to, here are two or three approaches that I might take, you know, for this tune that you're kind of premeditating to a certain degree. And obviously, like you're saying, you're leaving it open, but you're gonna have a sort of a starting place. Um, what, how do you define that? Like in your, in your head, are you thinking, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna use more um, altered, you know, uh, har harmonies here and go a little more outside, or mm -hmm. I'm gonna, swing hard or like what what are those how do you define it i'm just I, and and this, i have no idea if my, anybody in in the audience here is interested in this but i'm dying to know <laughs> i think i think what you said uh and, and thank you for bringing the question back around because now i remember the question you asked um uh, i i think all of those so um number one uh, a big springboard for me creatively is what am I trying to channel or who am I trying to channel mm. on my instrument? That to me is not something that causes any type of oppressive feelings at all. Right. I, I love that. Inspiration. It's inspiration, yeah. Right. And, and, and in a way, when I really get into that, I even feel, I don't, I wanna say like I'm armored, but if I am just deeply, deeply imagining Joe Henderson, right while I'm listening to the other, you know, the rest of the band or Charlie Parker or something, there's just not much room for any of the other stuff that's gonna sort of derail me. So one thing could be embodying another instrument or a person, guitar, like you said, and um, also besides all the things that we can do to uh, sort of go into that same timbre and just sonic zone, there's woodwinds and, and things like that or brass, um, sometimes it is, um, and in a band like Snarky Puppy, sometimes, I mean, there, there are tunes where the solo sections have changes, um, but there's also a, a lot of tunes that are primarily modal, you know, and that there's basically a key center, and that even if there might be some things shifting around, you don't really have to hit those. Um, in fact, sometimes it's better if you don't, you just kind of let that happen. Right. Um, so there's only so long I can stay in A minor before I uh, am, am sort of losing a thread sometimes. Uh, I don't know, trying to tell a story. Mm -hmm. um, so I will definitely inject tension, um, whether it be also like like you mentioned doing a really exaggerated thing with the time to sort of really create that that rub or harmonically 
um, either just doing some side slipping type stuff or superimposing things over that, um, which um, I, I like doing that a lot too because it's there's a, there's a tension, there's a great amount of tension and outness to it, but there's also a symmetry that the audience's mind perceives, right. even if they don't know anything about it. It's just that weird thing. If you start cycling something in minor thirds and you come back around or, you know, you're playing through the cycle of fifths even, just doing, you know, right. a, a jazz cliche or something, but it's it takes you from here to somewhere else and then you come back around. That's enjoyable yeah. um, as a listener listening to improvised music, which is uh, totally abstract. Yeah. And uh, yeah, so. Very interesting, um, man. You're sort of role playing. Imagine being a different player. That, that inspiration of, you know, I'm going to just like, my guardian angel here is going to be Miles Davis or Joe Henderson yeah. or something. I'm going to yeah. sort of, you know, slip into what would Joe play here? Or what would a guitar player here, you know, play here? That kind of thing, which is sort of, you know, am I gonna play this this way or that way? Which is a very cool and open-ended way and a, a really approachable way to do this for students. I'm, I'm speaking like for, you know, younger people who might be listening or, or students, um, you know, how, how to make this magic happen for them rather than, a more difficult way is, you know, having to have the harmonic language to be able to go, right. okay, I'm going to take this little phrase around the cycle, or I'm going to right. move it up chromatically, or I'm going to whatever, do some kind of a, a chord progression. So a little bit more advanced level, you know, for some people, but um, both amazingly great uh, approaches and, and great information. And thank you for sharing that, man. That's super cool. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Super I cool. mean... I, you know, another thing I was, I was thinking about, you know, with that is, is to say that in the moment, I'm not thinking about that. In fact, if I, if I'm playing in the middle of a concert and I'm like, oh, now I'm going to take this pentatonic lick and I'm going to start moving it in uh, major thirds and it's going to be hip. Like I will screw it up. Yeah. I will. I, I guarantee you, or, you know, even if I don't screw it up, it's going to be things will be flowing and they'll be maybe in the groove, I hope. And then at that moment is when things are going to get weird. Yeah. Uh, the groove will just be off in that strange way. And then maybe, maybe it comes back, but because it got too intellectual for a second. And yeah. you know, it's like, there's that slight latency that happens yeah. from the time you think it till you play it. Whereas there isn't that latency when you feel it and you play it. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. You know, um, and, and so, uh, you know, in, in the, in the practice room, that's why I find it so helpful to do very uncreative. I mean, it's very creative. It, it, it is creative, but I guess my younger self would be like, oh, yeah. you know, I don't want to be repeating or like, I don't want to play licks. I don't want to play patterns. But it's that you muscle know, memory. It's yeah, it's muscle memory and it's it's getting it's getting used to it. Just it's like it's practicing your conjugations. Yep. <laughs> and and just, you know, being able to say it like that and and not have to think about right. it. Right. So that when you are taking a solo and you go, Oh, I wanna do something with this lick, you don't have to like think about it a lot. Your hand just goes there because you've done it a million times before and you know how to go through the cycle without even you don't even realize you're doing it practically. Yeah. 
Yeah, exactly. It, and that's a, a magical feeling sometimes when it's just your body actually takes off sometimes yeah. and you're just sort of along for the ride, but it's, but it's all fitting in because you're, you're reacting. I mean, those are the special times yeah. that we all remember. Yep. You're like, wow, I, I want more of that. Yep. <laughs> um, another thing I, I, I was thinking about the role playing thing yeah. is that um, this comes to uh, something that I talk with my students about with transcribing. It's just something that helped me. And maybe everybody does this, or maybe this is, seems kind of strange, but um, I like, I think everybody that approaches the question of Boeing, mm. how do I, how am I going to deal with, with Boeing? Yep. And, you know, it seems like also there's some camps of well, there's sort of the band teacher telling the string players what to do camp. Yeah. Just slur every other one and then it will swing, you know? Uh, and then there's sort of the other camp of don't think about it at all, you know? Which, of course, you don't want to be thinking about it when you're playing. But right. if you never think about it at all, then you're just going <laughs> to exactly. just keep doing better think about it in the practice room. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I was... I was Getting, I was trying to, I was trying to become a better transcriber, and I was trying to go to the source. And this is when I first started practicing uh, solos out of the Charlie Parker Omni book. Yep. And um, you know, step one, go through, find all the mistakes. Uh, step two, <laughs> <laughs> you know, step two. What is it? Why I'm here? I'm I'm playing this, and okay, I mean. It, I can, I can maybe, maybe I can play the notes after I practice it for a little bit, but, but there's just so much that is not really there. I, um, I wasn't super satisfied with that. And, uh, but I, I didn't really know what to do. And for anybody out there that's looked at the Omni book or any of those things, there's usually nothing that you would call a slur or maybe just like a super, super long Bromsian phrase mark right. <laughs> or something like that, you know, where you're like, well, stuff is going to have to happen. In yeah. <laughs> um, so I, I couldn't figure it out. And um, I had had some success transcribing other string players because I could hear them change their bow. Um, and so this is all, I mean, nowadays it's a lot easier because you can just, you can do, you, you can transcribe stuff on YouTube yeah. and you can just, if you're transcribing somebody on your own acts, you can just see right. what they're doing. Uh, and I would highly encourage students out there to start at that place. That's a great place to start. Um, so I was trying to figure out how to do this and I, I couldn't figure it out because I couldn't, I couldn't hear any, any, uh, any place where obvious Boeing's necessary. Well, there were some obvious ones, but there was a lot of missing stuff. So, so here's what I did with, um, role-playing. Um, I'm listening to Charlie Parker on uh, sort of like in just, you know, a constant loop on a phrase. And if I, if I hear something clear, I'll just go ahead and like mark it in there. But if not, I would do this thing where I would imagine Charlie Parker playing it uh, kind of as I had seen him at the time in some sort of a black and white video. I'd see him in his double breasted suit. Yeah. Whoops, I just hit my mic. I'd see him in, uh, you know, his double-breasted suit, and he was up there on the bandstand, you know, playing. And I would, I would try to see him, see his body language or or lack thereof or whatever in the context of the band playing this phrase that I was trying to cop over and over and over again. And then what I would do, and this is the this is the weird part. Maybe this says something about me, is that 
I would slowly start to replace the image of him playing an alto with him playing the violin. Oh, wow, that is so interesting. But hearing hearing the same sound. So I wasn't changing the sound into, okay, wow. now I'm hearing a violin. But like, this is the sound of the sax coming out of a violin. And it's, and it's not just the sound of the sax coming out of the violin, but it's Charlie Parker right. playing the violin. And as soon as I could see him playing, and I was listening at the same time, I felt confident in my choices. Wow. That's not to say that they were any more accurate than something that somebody else did, but that's kind of not even the point. It's more, it's, it's, it, I think a lot of it is your conviction in your discoveries. Mm. How, what's, what is your, what is your level of confidence in these discoveries for yourself yes. in, in Boeing and articulation? Yes. Yes. So anyway, that's my that's my role that play, my extreme role so playing. So cool, man. So cool. And you hit on such an important word there, conviction. So cool. And it makes me wonder, were you listening to a lot of fiddle players or are you primarily listening to horn players and piano players? Well, the 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 Hendrix thing, so I, I was obsessed with Hendrix and I used to play in bands and had, I had a band in, even in college where like I would just played guitar. No way. I didn't, yeah, I wasn't, a, I wasn't necessarily very good, but I thought that I was. Um, interesting, okay. interesting that some of uh, you and, and um, Billy Contreras, you know, two super hot shit jazz string players are both guitar players as well. Uh, and I don't think that's coincidental. I think there's, uh, I talk a lot about this in the stuff that I've been teaching lately, this idea of, you know, string players, melodic violinists, especially more so than cellists. Uh, you know, we're melodies, we're up on the top. We, you know, so many, especially classical violinists just have no concept of harmony and chords and all of that. Uh, stuff that's so integral to learning jazz. Uh, mm. And when you start to play piano or guitar, you realize that it's all about chords. It's all about that. Um, yeah. And it's, uh, I think it's just, I, I, would, I would say it's almost essential for any string player who wants to play jazz to become a decent piano or guitar player at least to really kind of work work that stuff out and and get a, a a more global picture of music rather than our little catbird seat on the in the violin world. Absolutely. Cool, Absolutely. man. Awesome stuff. And now I've got a question for you. Speaking okay. of getting out of your comfort zone. <laughs> the moment you, on me. you've been dreading play a little game of not my gig i would love to you ready for this yeah all right zach brock violinist of snarky puppy we're gonna find out how much you know about kittens Ooh. oh boy all right you ready mm. okay get get two out of three get one out of three you win i we're we're pretty loose here it's <laughs> is this going to be kind of like wait wait don't tell me exactly it, like wait, okay wait, don't good. tell me without right. without the funny uh, host Okay. Oh, come on. You're great. <laughs> All right. Your first question. How many kittens are in the typical litter? A, one through five. 
B, 6 to 10, or C, 10 to 15? I'm going to go with B. Well, B is common, but more typical, 1 to 5. Ah! Uh, I, I would have gone with B. I, I was surprised, which is why I put it in here, because I knew I'd stump you. Okay, no worries. I thought I had <laughs> that one. Now, okay, I'm starting to sweat a little bit. Okay, no worries, no worries. Okay, second question. Zez Confrey. Does that name ring a bell at all? Oh, yeah, totally. <laughs> Zez Confrey wrote dozens of tunes for the piano, among them Dizzy Fingers, Sitting on a log, petting my dog, giddy diddy, pickle pepper polka, parade of the jumping beans, and flutter by butterfly. <laughs> but <laughs> his most famous work was undoubtedly Kitten on the Keys. In what year? <laughs> did oh. Zez compose his masterpiece? Was it A? These are impossible. Don't worry if you don't get it. A, 1935, B, 1947, or C, 1921? C, 1921. <laughs> you got it. Yes! You got yes! it. Because yes! what kind of guy would write songs like, you know, sitting on a log, petting my dog, and, <laughs> you know, after, after there was I such a thing as... Charlie Parker or something. You know? I was just going to say that nobody after 1928 was ever named Zez. <laughs> <laughs> I think that may be true Ooh. right there. Those were tough. That was really tough. Uh, I got Ooh. a couple extra. There's a couple of bonus questions for you here. So we can okay. pick up a couple right, extra right. points right here. Okay. Okay. True or false? Kittens' whiskers are as long as their body is wide. Hmm. I'm going to, this is the true or false, right? True or false. I'm going to say false. It's actually true. Ah! That's how they can sort of know where they can get through stuff, because if their uh, whiskers can go, then their body can fit. Okay. Good Lord. Oh, we got another bonus for you. True or false. All kittens are born with blue eyes, and as they grow, their eye color may change. True or false. I'm going to say true. <laughs> you are. Now that was like, wait, wait, don't tell me. <laughs> yes. You are absolutely right. You got three out of several and, or two or no, you two, got three. Yeah. You got three out of several. Two out of several. Uh, I, don't know, I forget. I think I, I got two. Because yeah. everyone's a winner. And the main idea is to show our listeners that we are not afraid of making fools of ourselves here on the Greater Groove Podcast. That was super fun. I never, ever get to do anything like that. That was amazing. Thank you, Tracy. Dude, thanks so much for for cluing us all into the crazy magic that goes on in your brain when you are behind a violin. <laughs> Man, just... Thank you. It's, it's wonderful. And, you know, we've... We've had a few opportunities to hang out, not too many, but never had a chance to really dig in like this. And yeah, uh, for sure. You know, I I would I have so many other things I would love to pick your brain about, but holy cow, man, and I, vice versa too. Uh, thanks, man. I, I this wanna, is going to be I hard got, enough to edit this down to a yeah. <laughs> forty-five minute. I know. Show. <laughs> We've been talking for almost two hours here, but uh, I really appreciate 
all this time and wonderful insights that you share. And yeah. thank you for doing what you do, man, and advancing the cause for string players. You are a shining light for so many string players, man. I hope you realize what an impact you're making on the string world. Wow, man. I, I really appreciate that. And um, it, it's just such an honor, real honor for me to be here on this podcast with you. Um, I just, like, you're, you're like the cat. Likewise, man. man. Likewise, my honor. Thanks for being here, brother. All right. I'll talk to you soon, man. You take care. Okay, you too. All right, man. See ya. Bye. Thanks for listening. If you want to stay in touch, please join the For the Greater Groove Facebook group. See ya. Groove on.